This is The Bayes Factor, a podcast about the people behind Bayesian statistics and other hot methodological issues in psychological research. In this third episode, Alex interviews two PhD students, Julia Rohrer and Anne Scheel. Julia studies personality psychology at the Max Planck Research School on the Life course, and Anna studies psychological research methods and reproducibility at Eindhoven University. They discuss their experiences with the science reform movement, how cultural differences shape reactions to reform efforts, and the controversy surrounding their group blog. Okay, we are here at SIPS 2017, the Society for Improvement of Psychological Science. I'm Alex Etz. I'm here with Anne Scheel. Hi, nice to be here. And I'm here with Julia Rohrer. Hello. Hello. Um, now, we're at SIPS. We've sort of ducked out of the conference for about an hour to record this thing. Um, how are you liking SIPS, this conference? It's sort of an unconventional conference. I mean, do you, do you find it to be stimulating? Do you find it to be overwhelming? I mean, how do you find things to do, right? I, what are your thoughts on this? What's your experience? I, I would say it's all of these things at once. <laughs> <laughs> so it's extremely stimulating. It's amazing to be here. There are so many people I've been wanting to talk to and so many things to discuss. And what I think is amazing is to, to get this feeling of the community. Like I've been really good at, at instilling that feeling. Um, but it's also, it is overwhelming. There are so many things going on in parallel. And I feel like projects are getting started and you can't really... Uh, carry on doing them because there are other things that you also want to do and and it's it's really stressful to sort of de determine what's most important and yeah so it's it's, it's all of these things at once yeah. I, but it's but it's great i mean i, I love it it's but it's also yeah right because that's lot. sort of it's different from last year right julia we were here last year yeah. sips one oh geez um <laughs> and uh, i mean last year was very focused right there were this year there's workshops there's sort of free space on conferences, lightning talks, but last year we sort of sat down in a room and really worked on one thing. Right? I mean, what do you think, Julia? So I, I'm, I'm not that sure whether maybe there's just a side effect of having it larger, so there are mm. more things going on that you're not aware of. And I remember I actually had a very similar feeling like last year already. There are oh. so many things like going on and multiple groups working on multiple things at the same time. And it's like that, like, oh no, fear of missing out. But actually I'm very much enjoying it. So it's mostly like last year, I think it was a lot of like cranking out ideas. Right. And so it's amazing to see that this year, like, w you know, like which ideas caught on and are now large projects. Yeah. So this right. is really amazing. Because that uh, psychology preprint server, SciArchive, yeah. was started here last year. Yeah. And <coughs> now it's like really massive. And we just heard this announcement that they're partnering with the APA to be the official preprint server. Well, not partnering though. Oh. A the APA endorsed SciArchive oh, as a preferred okay. preprint server. It's not as a as not far as I understood it's it's an it's a unilateral <laughs> decision as oh. far as I understood it. Oh, okay. Oh. I see. That's a good thing for me to uh, understand. Um, so I want to know uh, in your experience maybe at SIPS but maybe in general um, if you think there's some sort of a generation fight going on between the early career people who really want to do things and maybe the more established people who you know some of them are really into this but some of them are like you know 
this doesn't matter, leave me alone. I mean, have you encountered this in, in your work, in your life, in at SIPs or? So I think the like the breaking line does not perfectly align with like seniority or whatever. So uh, there might be like certain correlations, but we know that correlation is not causation and so on. So I guess it's fairly complex. So I know many like great senior people have been talking about that stuff for like 20 years. Mm -hmm. And now they're like, oh, this is so amazing that now everybody's joining. I've been saying that forever. And so, oh, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, our head of department is one of these people. This is great. So this is uh, at LMU, we have an, an open science committee that's been really successful, mainly because it was founded by people with very close ties to the steering committee. And um, so there has been a lot of support from that side, which doesn't mean that the whole department is, is on board in equal terms. But um, our head of department is one of exactly one of these guys. He's been saying, he says that he's, he's been calling for, for high... Uh, more statistical power for like 20 years or 30 years or something like that mm. <laughs> and uh, yeah yeah and, and so the same is true for my advisor uh, Stefan Schmuckle who's really like an, an awesome person and so he has been kind of like into data sharing from the start I guess because he told me when he submitted his first paper he asked his advisor oh, how do I send in the data? Like, do I put that on a floppy disk and send it to them? Right. <laughs> and uh, so I think back then it just seemed the natural thing to him. And so I think many of these people have, have, uh, have been out there for a long time. Yeah, but I, I would also say that I see, uh, I think it's a bit more natural for um, early career people to be into this because mm. I, I don't know, my conception is, or my, my impression is a bit that most um most people get into science being starting off being really idealistic, right? And then, and then, <laughs> and then the system slowly corrupts you over yeah. time. <laughs> That's right; it eats away at you piece by piece. Or yeah. Something. So, I, I, my impression was that students are so happy to hear about these things and are so on board, so on fire with this, mm. in a completely different way than people who have been doing science in a different way for a longer time. Which is really natural because if you're just starting out, you have nothing to lose. There's, there's not a bunch of old papers that might now be devalued right? Uh, and stuff like that. So all of this is understandable, but I do feel that there's a, a higher... Um, uh, a stronger push from younger people and and it's also i think something that we should embrace and we can harness as a as a changing force but we kind of have to keep that up and and uh yeah and and uh make sure that people don't that this doesn't die out right keep the momentum yeah how do you think we could keep the momentum i mean it it sort of is possible that we're s we're still in the bubble of you know a few hundred people are talking about this and yeah. everybody outside doesn't care and we sort of come to SIPs and maybe we pat each other on the back and say, wow, we're doing really great work. But how do we get people that aren't in this group really on board or that, yeah. you know, are in your field that maybe, I mean, you're in the developmental field and mm, well, not, in, not, not anymore, not anymore <laughs> I guess you're switching, but uh, the developmental field, maybe they have sp particular challenges. Maybe they yeah. don't feel represented. How do we sort of get people to feel like this is their group, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think it, it helps to plant seeds in different areas. So I, I've often felt that uh, there are probably many departments or also fields where there are single people who get in touch with these new ideas and really uh, are really interested by them. And that can be enough to s uh, start something off and they can start talking to their colleagues or to other students and spread the idea. I think something like this podcast is... Um, is a great thing to have and also like Facebook groups and, and Twitter I know a few people who are 
not active in these channels, but they're following them. And so you don't really see them. Mm. Like you from, from our perspective, you don't really know that they are there, but they're listening they're and they're very working. well. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I see. And this is also kind of how I started out like uh, for over a year or something. I was extremely quiet on Twitter. I was just reading and, and, f and liking. <laughs> right. Yeah, and me and too, actually. Yeah. And, yeah. and then at some point it, it kind of switches over and I'm, I'm hoping for that to happen to more people and we just have to keep spreading the word and making information available for more people and hope that it catches on, I think. Mm -hmm. Julia, what do you think? I, so I think there are like many small like steps one could do into that direction. And so I'm a bit more like I'm more into embracing chaos. And so <laughs> uh, I think as like psychologists, we know how hard it is to predict like human behavior and like now predicting like how a whole field or a whole like society moves is very hard. And I think like so you can like really think about how to actively steer it. And I know that some people are doing it. That can also really go wrong and you get interesting feedback loops and so on. And so I'm more into just like observing what is happening. So I try to encourage like single people, you know, to, to join or make them aware of cool things and so on. I'm kind of optimistic actually about all of that because I do think that now the ideas are like out in a way that it's hard. You can't just like delete everything happening on the internet. And because these things are like so convincing and many things are so obvious, like pre-registration, people are like, oh yeah, of course, this is how you should do science. And some students are like, oh wait, this is not how you do it. I thought this was how mm. you're going yeah, to do yeah, it. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So I think there will be just yeah. like that forward momentum just out of the fact that yeah. it is. So not like all of it, not the whole package probably, but single parts are so convincing yeah. that you yeah. cannot get rid of them again. Yeah, I, I think we need to, and this is something um, so, um, I've been on a on a hackathon on uh, on Sunday that was um, started by Simin and by uh, Morten and Gansbacher. Uh, Gansbacher? I don't know how to pronounce it in the American <laughs> way. Sorry. Um, and uh, about changing culture in at, at institutions, and we've been discussing that it might make sense to target different groups uh, in a different way. So there are people who are generally on board with the ideas but may not know how to actually put them into practice. And then there are people who are skeptical, there are early career people, there are students. And I think it's really easy to um, to target students who and just teach them <laughs> it in the right way. And they will never understand that anybody would ever have done it in a different <laughs> way. Uh, and that is great. Um, and then there are, for example, PhD students who might be in a more difficult position because they see that this makes sense, but their direct environment is maybe opposed to it or not supporting it. Right. And you need different kinds of support for them to make them feel that they're not alone and there are resources for them to draw on and to keep them on board. Uh, and then, of course, there's a uh, there are more senior researchers who might be much more skeptical because there's much more at stake for them. And we have to think about how to, to lure more people into new ideas when they feel like they have a lot to lose doing it. Right. I think. So there are different solutions at different uh, levels, I guess. Right. Do you feel like social media is one of these things that lets the students sort of realize they're not alone in this, right? They can get support from people on Twitter or people on Facebook, maybe their advisors or... Uh, colleagues aren't really on board, but they sort of get this feedback like, yeah, I'm not crazy. Yeah, yeah, right? absolutely. I, to yeah, I totally agree. So that was, th that was absolutely how I felt. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I want to ask about how do you feel, well, how do you deal with the conflict between needing to be sort of successful in the old traditional metrics, you know, publishing lots of papers, making flashy claims, um, with wanting to, you know, 
implement these good scientific practices, right? How can we balance this? Because from in, in a sense, we have to change the system from the inside in a way, mm -hmm. right? We can't yeah. just, you know, be very loud and call for changes and but then not get a job and then, you mm. know, yeah. Yeah. all that progress is maybe yeah. lost, right? Yeah. How do you balance this? So I have to admit in my field and the research I'm doing, it's not really a conflict. So this might be something particular. So I'm doing personality psychology. And so many of the actors in this, um, whatever you call it, movement are from personality psychology. So Simin Vazir and Sanjay and so on. And so it is really so we just had um, our conference in California and so we had a town hall meeting discussing how we could make that easier for early career researchers and reward them for doing that and everybody was on board. So this is a very wow. like um, specific situation in personality and I see that personality is pushing these changes um, a lot. So it is and I have also been like extremely lucky so I was able to publish null results mm. in a fairly good journals so this is like for me there's not that dilemma but i see how it's in different fields who have different needs there is this obvious dilemma right why do you mm -hmm. think personality is so on board with this what is it about it i'm i'm not quite sure so there has been um a blog post by david funder like where there's no replicability crisis in personality and i think we do have large issues that we have to tackle but people are more open about addressing these and so one point he makes that I find a bit convincing is that we are kind of boring. Okay. <laughs> and so I do feel, for example, um, I see the situation is very different in social. And so social is super popular also in the public media and actually for good reasons. So I actually started studying psychology because of social psychology. Me too. Yeah. So I think there are many people who um, think like, oh, this is what psychology is like and this is really interesting. And so that adds a lot of incentives because you also get a lot of media attention and suddenly the funding situation changes and so on. And I think that might be able to corrupt a field. Mm. And I suspect that might have. I, I'm not sure, but we just don't get that much. I mean, we are getting way more attention now, but it's already in a more mature stage. I, I have a slightly different perspective perception of that being mm -hmm. not being a personality mm -hmm. uh, researcher so um, I still think you get lots of media attention and lots of the things you're researching people do find it interesting I think people find it very interesting and my that's my my perception but mm -hmm. I think uh, what in, in my opinion what plays a huge role is that you've always been uh, very concerned with measurement mm -hmm. And that mm. has been way more important to the field, way more central to the field than to other fields. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, that's why personality has like a natural um, connection to um, people who are stronger on, on methods, pay more attention to it, and stronger on, on statistics. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is, and so people are much more aware of problems, like to begin with, mm -hmm. and and they are more um, able to deal with these problems and find solutions. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that there's a, a second reckoning coming about measurement in psychology? <laughs> I mean, if this is really one of the big issues, right? Yeah. Personality is working because they realize, like, we need to make sure we're measuring what we're trying to measure. Yeah. Do you think, you know, in the next year, two years, three years, this is going to become a mainstream topic? Or do you think it should should be? I think it should. It totally should. So I have the. Uh, so yeah, I come from a developmental uh, psychology um, background, and I think people in development are way too, uh, are not concerned enough with that. Uh, um, are not concerned with that enough. 
Uh, and they should be because uh, measuring infants is really, really tricky. Right. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> it's, it's, it's extremely hard to do. Mm. And people, of course, are spending lots of attention how to design the experiments, but they are but less so from a um, sort of from a from a methods or stats perspective mm -hmm. because you can't right. get high power you can't do uh, within designs a mm -hmm. lot you can't you can't do repeated measures um, and so there are, there are natural limits to what you, you what you can do uh, and I yeah I'm, I'm quite concerned that this is not in the focus enough and part and the reason for that is that it would be so hard to do it's not there's not an mm -hmm. easy solution probably right. the only solution is really to to go big and make only big collaborative projects and mm -hmm. and to understand that there is no way you can do a single lab research that is really meaningful and informative mm -hmm. uh, and and that's a tough insight to have i think and right. so i think there will be lots of pushback and, and and a lot of time will pass until people really come to that conclusion mm -hmm. I mean, it's really arrogant for me to say this is the conclusion of <laughs> 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 No, I, I think, you know, we need to have some end state that we're yeah. trying to move yeah. towards, mm -hmm. right? Even yeah. if we're going incrementally. Yeah, yeah so just one, one other thing. So why, why personality, I think, uh, is doing really well is also that it's relatively easy for you to achieve uh, good measurements. So uh, data is collecting data is relatively cheap or you can mm -hmm. collect huge samples. You can do repeated measures quite easily. Uh, and so you have like you're in a really good position to do this. And I see a lot of pushback in fields where it's more difficult, mm -hmm. for example, in, 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 in neuroimaging, for example. Mm -hmm. So and I think there's so much motivated reason going on. Like if, if it's hard to do, then you find reasons why you shouldn't do it or why it's a bad idea in the first place. I think we see that a lot with uh, certain aspects of this reform movement, right? Like some people will be against open data practices for their specific context, mm -hmm. right, where they're either with a, you know, a, a, a population that's very sensitive data. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. they think, well, you know, we can't really have a blanket movement towards open data because we have these exceptions. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, maybe if we set a default and then allow the exceptions, mm -hmm. yeah. right? I mean, yeah. do you think you, we could do this for more of these types of practices? like more defaults and then sort of go through a list of like, you know, if you're like this, maybe we, you I don't do it or... I actually think it already is that way. You so do. a lot of people are like, oh, we cannot do pre-registrations like this and that because it does not allow for this and that. And then you look into the actual like recommendations and guidelines and it's... So the people who are writing these like guidelines, they are like, I mean, they are smart people and they think of all these issues. And so the same goes for the um, like data sharing so that is why um, the Peer Reviewers Openness Initiative explicitly has that thing yeah. like you either share your data or you explain why you cannot do it. And if you have a good reason, that is perfectly fine. And so I think that might be actually like a public, public relations issue that yeah. people yeah. think, oh, because they are pushing that, they mean you have to do it this way and not any other way. And actually, I think this was part of what got us into this whole mess, for example, like the reliance on p-values in that like silly manner is just like so you have a suggestion it might actually make sense in many contexts and so on but people are like okay we have to do it like this right. instead of thinking about it time and time again which we probably have to do yeah. because i guess this is what science is about right so there is like no boilerplate yeah. solution how to do science yeah right. uh, yeah that's true but although i so i totally agree with you uh ev every time new um 
I don't know, standards are being proposed. Mm -hmm. There seems to be a bunch of people jumping up and, and um, coming up with a straw man and saying, oh. like, we can't, this is like, this is way too radical. And then you have to explain to them that it wasn't radical in the first place, that they are, of course, you thought about exceptions and, and that it's relative yeah, and yeah. this is about, and, and so on. But I still do see problems because, um, yeah, there are fields who can't share their data for example, and mm -hmm. where there really is almost no solution for them. So mm -hmm. one, one example from our own department that I've learned uh, a few months ago, and it was a bit eye-opening for me, was that um, a bunch of um, I&O folks who told me they, uh, they are working with huge companies, mm -hmm. and uh, in the, the moment that they would tell them that they want to share these mm -hmm. data, the companies will just stop working with them. Mm -hmm. wow. And there's no way to, you know, because for the company is that there's no, no cost to saying we're not going to mm -hmm. uh, work with you anymore. So they, they just wouldn't do any of that. Like there's no, no, uh, no amount of data sharing you'd convince them to. So, mm -hmm. and you kind of have to accept that. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's perfectly fine to say, okay, you can't do that. But um, it does create an unfair situation because, for example, also at our department, we now um, incentivize data sharing. Mm -hmm. uh, so parts of the um, the money that's distributed within the department um, is distributed based on um, if you if you have publications that were pre-registered, mm. publications with the um, open data badge or mm -hmm. with the open materials badge. Wow! So there are there are groups who can't earn that money for open data oh simply yeah. mm -hmm. based on the research that they're doing. Right. And I do understand that they find that unfair. And I think that's that's one of the the main issues we're faced with. We're always comparing ourselves to other other members of the group, so we will always feel that certain things are unfair, even mm -hmm. if we might still be relatively well off anyway. So, and and I do, I just don't want to dismiss these worries because I I see right. that this can be a problem. And I see that as like one of the side effects of actively steering by setting explicit incentives for these behaviors, right? And so one just has to be like very like careful and so there's probably no like easy or perfect solution yeah. so when it comes to like incentivizing these sorts of behaviors so i i think they should just be like stepping stones to like change the culture but then again i see there are like explicit incentives to do the wrong things mm. and so we have to kind of counterbalance these actively so it's i think it's a very messy but also very dynamic situation yeah yeah, and I, th I guess we also have to accept that things that some the world is unfair. Like life is unfair to some extent. Like it will never be perfect. Any like any solution we have will never be perfect. No, and we just have to, like you said, not just don't d deal with things like like a blanket solution, but but be okay with um, having to negotiate co constantly negotiating things and constantly working out what what is the the ideal thing for your specific uh, situation. And so I think the things that are like rewarding in themselves work very well. So I think these things for like documenting your data properly and setting up reproducible workflows. For yourself almost. For yourself. So mm. you don't need to incentivize people. Right. I, right. I hope you do not need to incentivize people to document their code properly because when they notice how much better it is, yeah. So you just have to get them to try it one time right. and they're like, oh, wow, why haven't I done that like 20 years ago? <laughs> I mean, we all have this experience of going back to our old code. <laughs> <Yeah>. Oh, my <laughs> God. <laughs> and oh my realizing God. like, <laughs> who who wrote this? <laughs> was this really how I did this? I can't believe I like, was I feel so I'm not, stupid. I feel like I'm not old enough to have that feeling yet, <laughs> but I do. I get <laughs> no, no, that I, even I six months yeah, ago. Yeah, yeah like exactly. <laughs> so I did, I did stuff last summer that I can't understand anymore, yeah. even though I was aware at that point oh that I God. should come like uh, uh, that, I, that I should document it in a way that I can understand. Oh, yeah, so I'm uploading all the code for the papers I publish. Please don't look at it. 
<laughs> well, I want to ask about your experience with these um, maybe cultural differences between the U.S. reactions to certain things in the reform and the European reactions. I mean, because these cultures are very different, right? Ooh. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we don't want to go into <laughs> this. No, no, I, I think it's an interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's a and very interesting topic. Yeah. And I mean, there are different levels to it. So I one one difference that I see uh, in, sp in particular between Germany and other countries is that we have more of an seem to have more of an um, authoritarian uh, structure. So professors are like have ha very high status, uh -huh. and there's a huge drop off uh, to the graduate student very level. Very hierarchical. Yeah. yeah. In many cases, I mean, not in every mm -hmm. single. Um, uh, grad student supervisor relationship um, but in general I see that much more uh, than in the UK or in the Netherlands or in mm -hmm. the US where the hierarchies are not as steep and that um, that plays a role because I think in, in Germany many professors also feel like they are in more entitled to not be criticized and not be touched and they are they are this uh, divine sort of entity <laughs> that, uh, it makes it harder to convince them that they should maybe change their practices and it ma makes it much harder for um, grad students to propose changes sometimes and even like I, I, I had that feeling myself that I felt uh, even for things that they, I could have discussed or I could have brought up just being too afraid to to even ask for something mm. Mm -hmm. like even if you y there was no real reason to assume that I don't know like, you wouldn't know how, how it would come out but just not not wanting to ask it because there's uh, yeah mm -hmm. too much too much respect <laughs> I see I see uh, Julia anything to so yeah obviously like um, inter-individual differences <laughs> right because <laughs> that's what I'm researching but so yeah it's n it does not match my experience but that is probably because I have an awesome advisor like he's reluctant you know like sometimes if you register for something and you can choose like the title and they would like prof or doctor or whatever and he he never like answers that he's like that makes him feel awkward oh really? so he is um, very different but that's just um, him and I hear a lot about these like hierarchical differences and then there's the professor and oh my god and probably also has to do with the fact that we do not have that tenure track system yeah, exactly yeah so there's oh. a huge gap between getting a phd and becoming a professor and okay. it's like uh, and you don't want to be in that area <laughs> oh wow <laughs> yeah because in the u.s you know there are like you know very incremental steps that you make yeah yeah, yeah in germany oh. there's nothing like that really yeah wow um okay maybe we'll sort of talk about this blog that you two are part of um, the 100% CI, which I love the name. Um, <laughs> it's you two and... Uh, Malte Elsen and Ruben Aslan. Okay. Um, and how did you get started on this? Because you really only started pretty recently in terms of the, you know, the blogosphere, right? I mean, what made you want to start, you know when maybe the peak of blogging might be sort of <laughs> past <laughs> us. Um, and you have a, you have a, you have a very uh, Oh, so you were blogging before it was cool? Uh, yeah. No, no, I was blogging <laughs> while it was cool. Oh, okay. And then now... <laughs> and we, we are blogging after. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After me, you know, of course. <laughs> no, but how did you get started with this? I mean, how did you four come together with this? So the really cool people come when the party's already over. But um, so I think it really started with the... Um, Congress of the German Psychological Association, right? So that was in um, Leipzig, and I'm living in Leipzig, so it was kind of like also showing people around and so on. 
And I think Anna wants to tell that story. <laughs> She's already smiling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, uh, yeah, so uh, we had uh, at the conference, uh, I guess people probably know the story, but um, Susan Fisk was invited as a keynote speaker to that conference. And um, we also had uh, like a, um, an open science symposium there. So loads of, of international open science advocates were there, for example, uh, were there. So like uh, Jette Wichert and uh, Chris Chambers and... Um, Brian Nosek. And Brian Nosek, yeah, oh, wow. he was giving a keynote as well. Uh, and so lots of people were there. And uh, like two or three days before that keynote of Susan Fisk, there, um, the she, she wrote that um, commentary uh, last summer, uh, which had this uh, term methodological terrorism. Yeah, in, the in methodological it. terrorism scandal. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the draft of that was leaked just like two or three days before her keynote. So ah. everybody was talking about that. Uh, and... Uh, then after her keynote, I asked a question uh, about that because I wasn't very, very happy about her, um, uh, ab about that, the piece that she wrote. And her keynote hadn't been on that at, uh, at all. But um, she still re replied to my question and invited us to talk to her afterwards. And so we, a few people, including Julia and uh, Malte and uh, Ruben, um, went to her and, and talked to her for 15 or 20 minutes. And uh, that kind of started the whole thing. And we, uh, I don't know, set up a, a, a Twitter DM chat after, after that. And we've just been constantly talking <laughs> to each other <laughs> since then, so since last <laughs> September. Uh, and it's been just all sorts of great. And at some point, we, I don't know, had that idea of starting a blog because I think every single one of us had been thinking about blogging, right? But we are also very aware of this of this thing that it, it's like we were sort of late in that blogging wave, and right. many, many very smart people and also very funny people had been ha had great blogs, and we didn't just want to write for the sake of writing. So there should be it should be good, and and then we thought it, it, it might be better if we join forces and make sure that it's that it's actually good and we're adding value and not just doing things that have been done before. And so in my experience, because I have been blogging before, like multiple times and had multiple blogs. And so like my experience is that it just like you started and you have a lot of motivation and then it just like slowly fades out yes. and dies down. I, I don't know how many like blogs are online that are not active anymore without ever explicitly. Yeah, mine's not very active. Yeah, right finishing now. the business. And you might want to take it up later again. Yeah. But then having four people, I think, really helps with that. Just because you keep generating ideas and you like right. check progress and so on. And so we even have like a spreadsheet where we have upcoming stuff that we would like to um, write about. And if you're probably doing it yourself, you wouldn't start that spreadsheet yeah. with more explicit information because you would just think, oh, yeah, I should blog about that yeah. and then forget about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's several aspects to that. So one is you don't have to keep it going by yourself. There are three other people who can add content but also you feel like more you're a bit more responsible to keep it going yeah. because it's not just for yourself it's accountability also for the there's yeah. some peer pressure there yeah, yeah. yeah. it's like working out with others yeah oh yeah which definitely. doesn't work for me but <laughs> 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 yeah because yeah, it, yeah. it, it is sort of hard right where you you it's really difficult as one person to generate enough content mm. frequently enough that people you know remember yeah. who you mm, are yeah. or are remembering to like oh maybe i should check their blog you know yeah. this month or something right yeah. but with four people you can sort of rotate like what's your your goal like uh, each of you writes a post every 
month, two months, oh, three the, months. The goal is to, <laughs> to not get in the situation where Julia is just constantly asking, is it okay if I write something again? Is it okay? Can it is not time last. <laughs> so one yeah, so I do feel like I have too much time. So, <laughs> so no, I just Julia is extremely productive and this is this is great. So the, the, the rest of us constantly feel a little guilty. <laughs> oh, you should not. You should definitely not. You're actually working and everything. <laughs> no, yeah, but I mean, right now, so we don't have a policy of ha like who should blog when. I mean, we, we are trying to rotate a bit, but then uh, some of us are, are in uh, have a phase where it's not really possible for them. So for example, Ruben is currently busy writing up his thesis, oh. so he's excused. So in, in terms <laughs> <laughs> of if, if you were wondering why Ruben, Ruben hasn't been blogging in a while, then, then he's like, that's he's totally, totally okay. He's totally busy, yeah, so and that's fine. So I see. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and so there's no real policy, but we're trying to keep yeah keep keep it kind of interesting and mixed. Yeah. And actually, I do have some implicit, so I get kind of nervous if we haven't <laughs> blogged in a month. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah oh, that's true. there should be. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well yeah. It's a good thing. And I think it's been worked. Uh, it's been working quite well in that respect. I, I on think the whole. Yeah, it's like a good interaction effect yeah. between the four of us because yeah. we are all very different in different yeah. f fields, in different career stages, even though we are all yeah. early, but in different. Yeah parts of the early careers yeah. right it's yeah. great yeah and i should also say it was just, it's just amazing it, it's so much fun like oh it is we these are these three people are so great on so <laughs> many levels and it's just it's it's been extremely gratifying and it's uh, uh yeah on on all sorts of levels it's just been such a joy and so we got an, a peer review process to make sure that we make the best puns oh <laughs> so great <laughs> And so actually, like in my blog post on like conditioning on a collider, right. like there's that one like very funny punchline at one point. And so it's actually Malta's joke. Oh. It's just like the placement of the joke within the context. So this was like brilliant. And I still get credit for that. I'm not like, I, I mean, I am very funny, but not that funny. That is Malta. I see. I thought... Um, one one thing that I thought was extremely funny on your blog was this April Fool's joke that you did coordinated with Andrew Gelman, one of the biggest bloggers in the social sciences. Um, maybe do you want to talk about how that came about and yeah. you yeah. know some of the reactions yeah. that you got from this? Yeah, we should probably explain what it was. Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> so basically, our idea was to set up like a just like a fake a fake post about like just make a bit fun of that whole like um like of failed replication of failed replication but also of the people crit like always talking about failed replications on just take it like on a funny level and so we had many very good ideas yeah yeah that would have all yeah also caused yeah. an outrage so the, the, <laughs> the main the main idea was to take um some person who's who was known for running a, a failed replication of some big effect and uh, sort of collaborating with them and sort of having a story of, of them actually suppressing uh, studies that showed the effect. Oh, hiding the successful replications. Hiding the successful replications, exactly. And so we had a few people in mind who could uh, be 
uh, who, who could do that for different effects that they like, they were known for. So one one person we had in mind was Stuart Ritchie, uh, with the who did um, the, f- the BEM replication. Right, the seeing the future. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Fe- feeling the future. Feeling the future. Yeah, oh yeah. yes. Yeah, <laughs> and and um, and and one of the people we uh, had uh, very they were very high on the list was Andrew Gelman and uh, the power posing effect, which he's quite well known for criticizing. Right. Uh, yeah. So the uh, the idea was that we would. Uh, d- discover or uncover that Andrew Gelman had a file drawer full of successful replications <laughs> of the power pose effect. <laughs> so our idea was not to focus on any specific kind of effect or any, any original author, but just of that whole theme of failed replications and then making fun of, of people hiding successful replications. I see. And this got some controversy going, um, did it not? Or it, it, well, it did. did. It did, yeah. In particular in the Facebook group psych map psych map yes so that is um well there are i mean there are like two large groups and i think the other group like psychological uh, psychological methods and discussion so psych mad i think people found it hilarious and on <laughs> yeah, psych map we then um had again like a tone discussion and whether this is bullying or not and so this was one point well, I noticed some very strong, probably also partly cultural differences, because after that I was like, oh shit, maybe we screwed up and this was yeah. really like bad and really bad for our careers. And so I talked with my um, trusted advisor and he's like, first of all, he thought it was hilarious. And then he would not be able, he didn't even understand the tone discussion, how this might be bullying anybody. Right. So for him, it was like, no, this is what he did really did not understand it. And so yeah. I, I think it sometimes helps to for at least for me to get like the perspective of my German advisor, who's a very reasonable person. And he's like, no, what I don't see that at all. Hmm. And um, so yeah. there is like a lot of, I think, disagreement, how to communicate, what is bullying, what is just being like unfriendly, what is like which level of snark is acceptable. So I feel like there. We are way more tolerant for snark. Yeah, I, yeah, I agree. So, so yeah, to just in, in case people haven't really been following it, so people, of, of course, were criticizing us for uh, picking on Amy Cuddy on the, the power posing e- effect. And I think part of why it, it got a little heated in some places, so it, it wasn't like we got major pushback. It was like some people found it hilarious, some people didn't and said that, and some people didn't say anything, and, and I don't know what they thought. Right. Um, and uh, so, I, and I think part of why it might have gotten more heated was that Amy Cuddy was I- being discussed more around that time, so she had given a talk at the APS conference, I think, or s- no, well, there was some, some earlier talk. Some other conference. Yeah, uh, so yeah, and that had just happened recently, so the whole thing had been cooking up again, and and at that point, I actually thought, so after, uh, after all this had happened, I thought like maybe we just shouldn't have touched that topic because it was too yeah people people were getting too involved with it and maybe it would have been a better idea to just let that die down and and just not not touch it uh, touch upon it because it was too yeah I don't I don't know but yeah yeah but I think other topics might have so for example we had that idea about having like rich lucas taking a long and hot bath just to <laughs> stop oh. feeling so lonely <laughs> and so i mean I, I would have liked a picture i don't know whether you would have like agreed on that but i, I think that might as well just with other people yeah. and other people getting upset for other reasons mm. so i think it yeah. was very interesting to observe that unfold 
but yeah. I also have to say that I got so much personal feedback of people that were like, oh my God, this was so hilarious. And also <laughs> lots of people like, I was reading it and I was totally believing it, which I find <laughs> really, because if you please go back and read that, then you see it's like, I mean, I, I don't... It's extremely hyperbolic. Like yeah, the way it is. <laughs> it's so over the top. I mean... Like like Andrew Gellman with a like fake moustache and yes. French <laughs> whatever. So it's like, you, I, how would anybody... But anyway, it was interesting yeah. also to see how willing people are to believe things. And that might also be moderated by culture again. So, mm. But mm. I also just want to say that it was like uh, Andrew Gellman was, was um, being so great with that. So I was I was amazed that he, he would agree to be in on, on this joke. So And it was kind of a, a back and forth between our blogs because he also released a blog sort of saying, no, this, none of this is true and <laughs> <laughs> denying it. And he uh, was really quick. Yeah, he was super quick and he was he, f he really liked it. And, and I didn't expect that at all. So that was that was also fun yeah. i see yeah so one of the themes of this blog is you know improving methodological practices mm -hmm. or improving scientific practices in general i want to know what is your your experience in your training like in your statistics courses did you enjoy oh. them or what were you what was your what were you taught like, you know, were you, <laughs> were you pressing buttons on SPSS <laughs> or, uh, and, and what do you think, you know, are the core skills that maybe people oh, are missing that's out a, that's on? That's a very good question. So for me, it was a probably a bit of a special situation because, so we had now stats prof, but a, like just a lecturer and uh, he was like close to retiring and so on. So there was that very special situation. Our university is also very, very poor. So there was that weird situation that I was actually like a, tutoring other students from the very first semester oh, of so you my mean when you say your university is poor you mean monetary wise yes okay. yes <laughs> um and so so i was kind of like one week ahead of like a group of i don't know like 10 of my friends who i then had to teach the same and it was a lot of button clicking SPSS. But however, I, I guess I'm really high on conscientiousness when it comes to these things. So I, I would like read up on it and so on. And it kind of made sense. And so I think the funniest situation was, so I then um, like became like a teaching assistant, like a student teaching assistant. And I gave our master's uh, stats class in the second year of my bachelor, I think, together with a friend of mine. And wow. so that just required us to just like really get into it because we wanted to do it right, right? So it was the funny thing when I then became like the like the stats teacher of the student who had formerly been mine. And so it was, it was a funny situation. And I think it helped me a lot because we would just like, so it was a, f a friend of mine, um, Florian Schafziller, who's also like super um, into that. And so um, really good oh that's his facebook name it's not anyway <laughs> <laughs> so um, um we just like taught ourselves and that helped a lot and he's now getting a phd in like the methods department that now has a proper professor and everything mm. yeah yeah so my um my experience is um so in i don't know if that is true at every university but in my undergraduate you had a uh, uh, stats lectures in the first year mm -hmm. uh, of starting and at that point um, you had no experience of collecting data and mm -hmm. or really being in on how, how to design a study and I've always thought that this is a really unfortunate situation because you're getting taught to do things with data before you know where that data comes from how that looks like and why you should do these things because you, you don't have that yet you're mm. not in the situation where you need to perform these tests 
You so, don't even know the scientific question. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, exactly. And of course, there are examples in, in the lectures and all that, but it's never your specific problem that you have to solve. And so my experience was, and, and also these, these lectures are really important uh, usually, and there's an exam at the end that uh, if you don't pass it uh, on the, I don't know, second trial at the uh, second try at least then um, you can't continue your studies so that's kind of the the um, the bottleneck that they are trying to to mm. push the students through mm. and I, I can understand that decision but the thing is you have this one year where you learn all these things that are really abstract and complicated mm. just sort of push these things into your head sit the exam and then forget most of that right and then in the second year we had our first empirical projects where like small projects mm -hmm. collecting some data and then and then at some point analyzing them and by that time the stats lecture has been like i don't know six months eight months mm. in the past uh, no idea how that really connects to any real life situation so what what happened was you sit in front of a computer with spss you have mm. your data set and there's a teaching assistant telling you which buttons to push in spss wow and i think that was and and for me that experience was okay i think this is what most people will continue to do for for mm. a long time of their career and i experienced that to be so much insecurity i didn't really know uh, there were i had to make this statistical decisions and i didn't really know how to make them so mm. As there, so there was our lecturer of that empirical seminar telling us you, we're using that kind of uh, post hoc comparison in Alpha and ANOVA, for example. At, in SPSS, you can do a Sheffy test or a Chuki HSD and stuff like that. And she said, we're using this one. And that was like, okay, that, like, she knows. This is this is what you do, right. but no reason why or, or the cookbook approach. Yeah, exactly. They and teach you there's one way to do it. There's one answer. Yeah, and and also and this is a, like a social norm, mm. you know. There's so much insecurity, and you have to rely on. It gives you lots of securities to think. Oh, okay, but the group is doing this, so I'm fine. Right. Mm. I I had no idea how to do it, but and I don't know why we're doing it, but everyone else is doing it too, so it's okay. Mm. And I think this is. Um, this is such an unfortunate situation, and, and I can't really remember how, where I learned more stats than that, but it's just always, I've always been interested in it. So I've constantly been, I don't know, self-teaching or seeking other courses. And uh, so for me, the most, um, and I think that ties back in with what you said, um, Julia, I think um, having uh, a specific problem to solve mm -hmm something you have to work on, something you have to figure out or teaching other people. And that's where I've learned most about statistics yeah. mm -hmm. during my whole studies. And so I think there's that particular problem to like psych programs in Germany is that so in Germany to become a like psychotherapist, which many, many, many of our students want to do, you first get a bachelor's degree, then a master's degree. And so you will go through the same stats training as the people who later decide to go for a PhD and that might change in the future yeah. but right now it's like so I also see the same point like I, I taught stats and it's like okay for many people this is actually irrelevant so you yeah. can go for that cookbook approach if you want them to have some understanding but not perfectly know everything which is also fine and so it's like that fine balance and I guess it's important to somehow offer possibilities for students who are more into that who want to become researchers yeah. to just make resources accessible to them and then it's something you have to learn by yourself anyway yeah. right. it's the yeah. same for like learning yeah. programming this is not something you can yeah. actually teach you yeah. can just encourage or force people yeah. to teach it to themselves yeah. right. and, and so uh, oh, go ahead 
No, I, yeah, I agree. I think it's a really tough problem. It's not mm. easy. There's no easy solution to do this. And one thing that I've been thinking of was to kind of cut it down a bit and make it more intertwined with um, people, for example, collecting data, having other courses, mm -hmm. taking uh, projects that they do mm -hmm. and teaching them statistics based on these projects and things that are their problem in that situation. Mm -hmm. Because I think that's where you learn much better. If you really have to solve a problem and you need to learn the statistics to, um, to, to get to that solution that you need to get to. Yeah, though it gets a bit like that circular situation that actually to design something, yeah, you yeah, of course yeah. kind of need to understand the stats, but to understand the stats, you should have probably have a feeling for the data. So what we had and what I think is a really great idea, so in the very beginning of the undergrad stats teaching, like everybody filled out a questionnaire. So it was like, just like some, you know, self-report stuff. And I think um, Flo has been constantly adding to that and so on. And then you actually enter the data together with the students. So they get like a feeling right. for this is right. a variable. Yeah. This is yeah. what a record looks like. This is what data looks like. And then you can actually analyze these data. So our classical yeah. example was always so they could like self-report, like weight and height. And then you could do a scatter plot and calculate the BMI based on that. And it's probably not the best example, but you could use stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. And people will look at the scatter plot and will be like, oh, where's my data point? And mm. wow, who's that fat person? <laughs> <laughs> so it's probably not the optimal <laughs> Talk about <laughs> cultural differences. Yeah, there might be cultural differences. <laughs> cultural yeah. differences. <laughs> but it is a lot of fun <laughs> if you collect the data that way. And since the questionnaire was designed by us, it was... Yeah, yeah. Not that yeah. effort, but they actually understood what the data yeah. was and what like one yeah. row of data meant. It's one person. Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That's another great, great way to do it, to make it your data. And that's why you're interested in it, and not just some example, some abstract stuff mm. that you have no relation to. Yeah. Right. So what skills, like particular techniques or skills, or you know types of analyses that mm. maybe you think aren't being used enough or you think are useful that people maybe don't know about i mean i personally am one of these people who wants to promote bayesian things <laughs> uh, <laughs> 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 and you know i mean th but but we all sort of have our own little ideas yeah. like mm -hmm. what do we think more people should be doing uh, and what are those for you um i think uh, one thing that i can keep uh thinking about is that uh, people uh, that I'm that I know are sort of don't know much about regression mm -hmm. and I think that's different to to your field mm -hmm. yeah probably because <laughs> all you do is regression <laughs> but in development much less so so in development people are constantly looking to break down the designs in a way where they can compare two groups oh. <laughs> so break everything yeah, into a factor me median, median, median split, split is very oh. dim, dim, dim. <laughs> yeah exactly and and no, and no, to, no. to make people understand <laughs> that like everything is a special case of regression more or less mm -hmm. and or and and I think it would um, go like go a long way to teach people uh, to be more comfortable with with multi-level modeling and mm -hmm. and make them uh, and make them understand how it works and make them treat uh, more specific cases as specific cases of the abstract thing but make them be able to use the abstract thing because mm -hmm. in my statistics it was like yeah we got taught regression but then you never use it because you always have these simpler designs mm -hmm. and the regression is always that thing that you never really know how it works and how to do it and right. it's so uncomfortable and you kind of just stay, try to stay away from it oh, that's and you always do a median split I, I never heard of that before yeah it's really it's fascinating totally my, my impression oh yeah, cool. Julia any uh, so my topics current pet peeve is causality mm. um, just <laughs> probably because we cannot run experiments in psycho we can but not that easily because you cannot manipulate personality that easily and but I wa what I notice is it's like 
it comes up at so in so many situations. So we all learn correlation is not causation. We don't probably fully learn why, because we don't really talk about counterfactuals or stuff like that. And so we still teach people how to control for variables, but not really making clear what this is actually all about. And right. so this is what mm -hmm. I'm currently really interested in. And it was really fun writing those blog posts because afterwards a lot of other people started following up. And so uh, other people started writing blog posts and reading up on it, which is really great. But it was actually just a coincidence that I attended a workshop by a sociologist um, like Felix Elvert. And then I was like, oh, this makes so much sense. Right. So it's just like my current thing. <laughs> I see. Uh, and one final question I have for you, since we sort of have a theme on this podcast of Bayesian statistics. Mm -hmm. I want to know, do you have any experience using this with your research? Or uh, do you are, are you uh, opposed to it? Or have you <laughs> not? <laughs> you, know, there are, you know, there are certain people. Um, oh. But, I mean, ha have you just, you know, has it come up for you or have you learned about this? What's your experience as, you know, pretty early career people? Mm -hmm. Should I stop? Uh, yeah, go ahead. So um, I have to admit I'm a very pragmatic person. So and this is something that people that work with very large data set observe is that like it actually doesn't really matter, right? Because we have so much data and so it will always overwhelm your prior no matter what. However, I do, so I read um, that stats book by uh, Richard McElrath. Statistical S Rethinking. And it's awesome. So I um, joined a book club at Michigan State that was like Bays and Bagels. Oh, and that was nice. really cool. And so I worked through the book and I really enjoyed it. And I really see like why um, people champion this approach. It makes a lot of sense to me. And I just finished reading um, Nate Silver's uh, the signal and the noise, which also makes a very strong point. And so I, I think it's hard to argue against Bayesian statistics. I know that people get very emotional about that. I normally <laughs> don't get that emotional about numbers, but I can see <laughs> how people get emotional about numbers. And actually, I think there are good arguments on like both sides as well. Mm. And I, I guess there is no um, one size fits so one size fits all approach to stats. And there are also what I always prefer is those situations where your data is strong enough that it actually does not matter. Right. Your data passed the... It overpowers the prior. Yeah. 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 So There's a saying, the data passed the interocular traumatic <laughs> test, <laughs> yeah. where they exactly. hit you right between your eyes <laughs> and you can't miss it. Yeah, and that's my, like, my favorite situation. But I see how there are many fields who do not get into these situations. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm really, really, really interested in, in Bayesian statistics, and I do want to learn more about it because I constantly feel that I don't understand enough about it. Uh, one thing that I really like about Bayesian approaches, and it, it might not be unique to Bayesian approaches, but I think it, it emphasizes them, is that you don't you, you consider different models and you compare different models, right. different hypotheses, uh, and not just one, not just test, not just testing the null hypothesis. And I see a lot of lots of problems right now where people's uh, um, experimental approaches are not really falsifiable because they don't <laughs> really consider what would be a small enough effect to care about that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, and you can do do these kinds of, of analysis with frequentist approaches, but I think the Bayesian approach makes that very explicit and makes people um, think about these cases. Uh, um, and I think that is great and we should do that a lot more and, and really see if, yeah, what, what, what's going on and make, make our, um, uh, tie ourselves down more. What do we actually expect? Like, what is the actual theory? And it's not just, not this, not this very specific case, but anything else. 
that's not very that won't be very right. informative right right well thanks so much for being on the podcast guys this was so much fun i'm glad you joined me thanks so much for inviting us that was yeah. great fun thank you it was fun <laughs> You can find this podcast and all the background information mentioned in it on the Tufts High Lab website at sites.tufts.edu/hilab/podcast or follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at the base factor. We want to thank Sol Albert and Laura de Ruiter for their technical support. Sotaro Kita from Warwick University for generously letting us use his lab for several interviews. The Cognition and Individual Differences Lab at UC Irvine for their financial support and Theo Fosse for creating the music for this podcast.